Good to hear the reading of God's Word. It's taken us seven weeks to get through 47 verses, um, but uh, here we are at the end of the book of Titus. Uh, a small book, but packed with a lot of truth. And I want to uh, jump in today. We're going to uh, wrap up this book, and then we're going to uh, take the Lord's Supper. We try to take the Lord's Supper once a month here at TCC as an opportunity to celebrate the work of Christ on our behalf and His death and resurrection. Um, and uh, excited for us to, to be able to do that uh, today. Uh, but I want to remind us why we began the book of Titus uh, about six weeks ago. <clears throat> uh, the book of Titus has been described by some as a, um, an apostolic manual for church planning. The context of Titus is the Apostle Paul and Titus had apparently uh, done uh, kind of a mission journey in, on the island of Crete, a, a, an island that had about 20 towns. They went about sharing the gospel, and uh, there were many who had believed, and then those who had believed needed to be gathered together in churches. And uh, Paul writes to Titus to uh, instruct them in putting in order what remained, uh, which was uh, establishing these churches. And the priority was to establish leaders in the churches who would uh, lead the church uh, to be um, <clears throat> sound in doctrine and faithful in discipleship, clear on the gospel, committed to godliness, and as we're going to see today, devotion to good works. As you look at the book of Titus, uh, you see uh, what we, we called six essentials for, for every church. Um, and these six essentials are really the, the things that uh, Paul presses into as he writes to Titus. Um, and, and if you think about what Paul is trying to do as he writes to Titus and, and the reason that we are looking at this book at this particular time for us as a church plant uh, is, to, is to be reminded and to be grounded in what's most important for us, what's essential for us as a church. There's so many things that we could do, uh, but what must what, what should we do, if you could think of it in that way? And these are the essentials. As we mentioned, uh, Paul presses Titus to establish pastors, uh, elders, overseers, all these terms that are used interchangeably. Faithful leadership uh, is called for in the church. And those who are called as pastors, one of their primary responsibilities, in addition to the shepherding and leading the people, is to... Um, is to teach God's Word, is to proclaim God's Word, which involves not only the positive aspect of instruction in sound doctrine, but of rebuking false teaching and false teachers, which Paul goes into uh, in verses 10 through 6, 16 of chapter 1. And as Paul moves from addressing uh, the, the qualifications of, of elders or pastors and addressing this apparently urgent issue of false teaching on the island of Crete, he, he gives us a vision of discipleship in Titus 2. Uh, what we call the culture of discipleship, where it's normal for you to meet with others, to study God's word, to talk about life, to be encouraged in the gospel, where older men invest in younger men, and younger men desire older men to speak into their life, and older women pursue younger women and, and train them up in godliness, and younger women open themselves up for discipleship and uh, instruction and godly living from older women, that it's normal uh, to open our lives up to others and to talk about God's word and to confess sin and to to uh, seek counsel and, uh, and pray together and, and walk through burdens together. This is the normal pattern of life, that discipleship is uh, to be characteristic of every stage of our life. And no matter what station of life we're in, we're called uh, to pursue godliness. And godliness requires discipleship. And then this discipleship, though, isn't just, uh, it, it isn't just like a, 
you know, okay, if you want to be in the church, these are the things that you have to do. You know, here's the, here's the boxes that you have to tick. Um, verses 11 through 14 remind us that the, the culture of discipleship that Paul talks about in Titus 2 is to be grounded in the grace of God, which comes to us through Jesus Christ. The grace of God appeared in Jesus in his first coming and brought salvation, made salvation available to all people and to those who would receive him, those who would receive his grace, trusting in Jesus as Savior, the grace of God then trains us in godly living, trains us to pursue God and to grow in godliness. And that's where we saw last week this growth in godliness that's grounded in the gospel, gospel clarity, the importance of being clear on the gospel and understanding what the gospel does in the life of the believer. I hope you spent some time soaking in the gospel this week being reminded of what God has done for us in Christ. <clears throat> if there ever were a season where we get to soak in gospel truth, it's this Easter season uh, as we anticipate celebrating uh, Jesus' resurrection from the dead and uh, his resurrection which proclaims that his death in our place and for our sin was sufficient, uh, satisfying God's wrath and judgment against us, giving us a new identity and eternal hope, eternal life that's found in Christ. And it's fitting, as we come to Titus 3, uh, we also are going to be reminded of the gospel today. It's like Paul can't, uh, can't get over it. He uh, unpacked how the gospel uh, brings salvation, making salvation available to all people and training uh, those who believe in godly living. Uh, and then in, in our passage today, we're going to see how the gospel motivates us towards good works. And so we see the same uh, same type of structure that was in chapter 2. We're going to see in verses 1 through 2 the call uh, to good works uh, that, uh, that Paul lays out in those two verses. And then he's going to ground that call to good works in the gospel. Uh, just like we saw him do in chapter 2. And I think uh, one of the things that's been pressed home to me as I've studied uh, Titus, particularly over these last few weeks, is, uh, is just how central the gospel is. Uh, last week we ended on verse 15 where Paul tells Titus to declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. In other words, Titus, don't let up on the gospel. Don't let up on gospel teaching and the implications that flow from the gospel. Keep coming back to the gospel. It was Martin Luther who said the gospel is so important uh, that as his people gathered each week that he had to beat it into their heads again and again. I don't want to be so violent or abrasive to you, but I, I hope that we don't ever get over the gospel. Um, and as I thought about the uh, way in which the gospel functions in the church, it's uh, somewhat like uh, banking. Uh, when you uh, build a bank, I don't know if any of you have done this, um, <clears throat> uh, but my understanding is the most important part in building a bank is the, uh, is the design and the, the construction of the vault. Uh, you know, the, the vault is where the most prized possessions in the bank go. Um, <clears throat> now we bank so much online, it's like, where is our money? You know, it's kind of floating around out there somewhere. Is it real? Is it not? I don't know. But supposedly in the bank, the money's in the vault. Uh, the vault is the very existence, uh, the very reason for the existence of the bank, right? Uh, so uh, when they build a bank, they start with the design of the vault, and then everything else is built around that vault. And... Uh, and in a similar way, the gospel is to function as a vault 
in a bank. The gospel is to function in the life of the church. However, as I thought about that, it ultimately breaks down because, uh, you know, today when we go into a bank, I don't first think, uh, where's the vault? I don't first think, you know, uh, when I talk to a teller, um, uh, you know, they don't tell me about the vault. Uh, They don't tell me about uh, what they're keeping in the vault. In some ways, kind of the, the, the desire is once the bank's up and operating, you kind of leave the vault in the back where it's safe and out of sight, and you get on with the rest of the banking. Well, sometimes that's how the gospel actually functions in the church. Uh, you know, it's, it's there, it started us, but now we're on to, uh, to bigger and better things. Well, the gospel is to be central as a vault is in a bank, but it's not to be in the back and out of sight, but it's to actually be motivating and driving everything that the church does. It's to, uh, it's to be shaping us in every way, directing our steps. And, and this is what we saw, as we mentioned in Titus 2, how a culture of discipleship is grounded in the gospel. Titus 3 is going to build on it. And what I want us to see today is that both discipleship and mission are ultimately grounded in the gospel. Discipleship and mission. Mission, as Paul expresses it here, is the outworking uh, of good works by believers towards those outside of the body of Christ. So in verses 1 through 8, we're going to see how the gospel leads us to be devoted to good works for all people. The gospel leads us to be devoted to good works for all people. This devotion to good works we heard in, uh, in verses 1 through 2. And, and apparently, this is not you know, new information that Paul was reminding Titus to remind the churches of. This is information that uh, perhaps was a part of Paul's teaching when uh, he began to, uh, to instruct new followers of Christ uh, in, in what godly living looked like. So he tells, uh, Timothy, excuse me, tells Titus to remind them of these things, implying that these things had been heard before. So he says, remind them of these things. And, and what's so uh, interesting, especially in chapter 3, but it's broader than chapter 3, is that you cannot miss Paul's concern for good works. The Christian, Paul is saying, has a responsibility to work out their faith for the good of others. It's abundantly clear. Look at all the references. Um, In uh, verse 16, uh, Paul's concerned about um, false teachers because they're unfit for any good work. In chapter 2, as he reflects on the work of Christ, the fruit of the work of the cross is that it would produce a people uh, who are zealous for good works. And then three times in chapter 3, Paul presses home the point that believers are to be devoted to every good work. Verse 1, we're called to be ready for every good work. Verse 8, as he sums up this teaching, he says, be careful uh, to devote, you, you are to remind them to be careful to devote themselves to good works. And then as if uh, he wanted to press it home one final time, perhaps the last thing that he says in the book is he says, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Paul's concern for good works is uh, central in chapter 3 and evident in the entirety of the book. And it's, we're going to see the gospel that would lead us to be devoted to good works for all people. So what is this? good works for all people uh, look like? Well, kind of in a surprising fashion, I'll be honest with you, um, as you really think about uh, what Paul's saying here, it's somewhat uh, interesting that the first point that he makes is to call believers to be good citizens. 
He speaks of our relationship to governing authorities in verse 1. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient. Submissive and obedient is the relationship of the believer to governing authorities. Christians are called to be good citizens, recognizing the government authorities as uh, uh, bearing and reflecting their authority as uh, an, an ultimate and accountability before God, uh, who, who has given us governing authorities to, uh, to reward what is good and to punish what is evil, as we see in Romans 13. And so uh, Paul is calling believers to, to be good citizens, to recognize the authority of their governing leaders, and to <clears throat> ultimately submit to and be obedient to the reasonable and appropriate obligations towards governing authorities. That's the, the, the first thing that he presses home in terms of what it means to be devoted to good works to all people. We see this in Romans 13, 1 through 7, uh, Paul's uh, teaching on our response to uh, governing authorities. We see it in other places like 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. We just read 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 7, uh, where we see the same type of thing as Paul instructed Timothy to pray for those who are in positions of authority and leadership. And, and it's interesting, in, in this, Paul's concern is that believers would, uh, would be able to respect governing authorities, that they wouldn't, they wouldn't take as their approach to be submersive um, to those who are, who are governing and who are in positions of authority, but they would be model citizens, paying their taxes as Jesus taught, obeying the laws, and, uh, and getting on with life getting on with living godly lives, getting on with giving themselves to good works. And it's, it's interesting as we step back and we think about Paul uh, and Titus and, and Crete in a Roman context, they really had no ability to influence government. Uh, we uh, sometimes, as we read uh, these passages, one of the things that the church wrestles with today is, is, is how do we work out our faith when we do have the opportunity to be a part uh, of, our, uh, of our government, when we live in a representative uh, democracy in which we have the ability to participate. <clears throat> well, I think the, the same message must be true, that we must take as a posture, not one of, of defensiveness and standing against our government, but one of being submissive and obedient. And as I say that, Anytime governing authorities call the church or call believers to, to go against their conscience, to go against the clear teaching of God's word, we see all the way from the beginning in the book of Acts, and even in Jesus himself, that we are called to obey God rather than man and accept the consequences. Obey God rather than man when called to do something that goes against the clear teaching of God's word and accept the consequences, as, as Peter will say in 1 Peter, suffering for doing good, suffering as a Christian. And, and so uh, in, a, in kind of a, uh, a really radical stance, when we think about this, Paul's calling Titus to tell these believers to be good citizens in a pretty unfortunate governmental structure, Right? I was reading about uh, Crete, and of course we know about Rome, and during this time most likely Nero uh, is, um, <clears throat> is, is the emperor, the Caesar uh, of Rome, who would 
ultimately kill Paul um, <clears throat> and uh, have him martyred uh, because of his faith. But also, <clears throat> uh, there's a Greek historian, Polybius, speaking of Crete, who said this, that <clears throat> in Crete it's impossible, uh, it's impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. You can't find anywhere else personal conduct more treacherous and public policy more unjust than in Crete. And Paul told Titus to tell the believers to be submissive to the rulers and authorities and to be obedient. It doesn't mean that believers today don't speak for what's true. It doesn't mean that we don't seek uh, to make more just what is unjust, where we have the ability to exercise influence but it means that we take as a posture believing that God is sovereign, believing that God has put us where he's put us, and respecting authorities, respecting the, um, <clears throat> the reasonable um, and appropriate obligations that government authorities put upon us. As a Christian, motivated by our faith. And, and also, as I think about what Paul says here, one of the things that I think is particularly helpful for us is, Paul is clear, the New Testament is clear on its teaching for how believers are to view government. And one of the things that's striking about the way that it does is I think it shows us that believers aren't to wrap themselves up and be consumed by their governing authorities. They're to recognize them and then to get on with living. Now, some of you will have a calling to be engaged in political activism or perhaps in government. That's a good calling uh, that you should steward to God's glory, faithfully uh, representing Christ in the work that you do. But I think for the average believer, one of the things I've been challenged by even in our uh, cultural climate uh, is sometimes to just check my own self, how easy it is to get wrapped up. And did you see what you know, the Congress did here? Did you see what this senator said? Did you see what that representative said? We can get wrapped up in it. And I think, as we see in Paul's teaching here, that we're to respect our governing authorities being good citizens. But there's also a sense in which, as he's going to shift now at the end of verse 1, there's other things that Christians have to get on with doing, like allowing good works to be displayed in our lives. So respect your governing authorities and get on with living the Christian life. And that's where he begins to unpack not only our relationship to governing authorities, but our relationship to all people. As he says at the end of verse 1, not only do we take you know, a sense of, of recognizing the authority of, of, uh, of those who are over us, but, but there's also this positive sense that we seek to do good at any chance we can, ready for every good work. In the Christian life, we're called to seek the good of others. It's wrapped up. In the Ten Commandments, as Jesus summed it up to the rich young ruler, to, to love God with everything that we have, all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. And it's not an empty, sentimental love, but it's a, a tangible love that's reflected in the way that we live. It's reflected in good works towards others. It's reflected in, in not speaking evil of anyone. Think of the high order. It's simple in a way what he says here, but think of the high order of what he says. Speak evil of no one, verse 2. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle and show perfect courtesy towards all people. That's the tangible demonstration uh, of the Christian's life towards, 
towards all people. And Paul's putting particular emphasis on our relationship to those outside the body of Christ. We see these same characteristics are to be true in the body of Christ. But he's also saying that this is to be true of all of your relationships outside the body of Christ. That as Christians, you're to be known for people who do whatever you can to seek the good of others, to meet needs, to serve. You're the kind of people, we are the kind of people who don't go around bad-mouthing everybody that disagrees with us. We are the kind of people who don't attack ad hominem, uh, straw man attacks against others because they are on the opposite side of a particular issue or we feel threatened by what they believe. We don't go about looking for a fight. There's, there's not a desire to own someone in a debate. We're, we're characterized by humility, which isn't a passivity, but is a desire to, um, to choose to understand others, to choose to put the interest of others before ourselves. And then courteous, or, or perhaps better, uh, the idea of gentleness or meekness, literally all gentleness to all people, uh, is what Paul says in verse 2. Gentleness, uh, one commentator says, is the attitude that quiets personal concerns to make room for the concerns of others. And meekness, or humility, is the balanced perception of oneself that makes it possible to regard others as more important, which we see in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3-4. through four. This is to be our posture towards those outside the body of Christ. And in and, and many ways, as I think about how Christians sometimes, and I, in, in my own self, as I've evaluated the posture that I take towards the world, you know, the Bible has pretty strong language for how we are to uh, oppose and fight sin. The Bible has pretty strong language about making war with sin. But do you know what the Bible doesn't have that, that doesn't use that language in, toward, in, in terms of how we treat sinners? It doesn't use the same description of making war against those who are outside the body of Christ. We don't see it in the pattern of Jesus' life, whether it was with the woman at the well, whether it was with, with the, the rich young ruler, even as he looked out upon Jerusalem, people who were going astray, disobeying God's word, not ready to respond to the promised Messiah, he weeps for them. He looks at the rich young ruler and it says he loves him. He looks at the demon-possessed man in Mark 5. We were just reading through this in our Jesus Kids Club, uh, who's out of his mind, whom nobody else could, could handle or didn't want to touch. And he draws near him, and he helps him. He hears the cry of the blind Bartimaeus, not as an unclean sinner whom he doesn't have time for. <clears throat> this is the heart of Jesus towards people who don't believe. And I have to ask myself, do I reflect the heart of Jesus towards those who don't believe? Is my life characterized as a readiness for every good work? marked by humility and gentleness and meekness towards all people, all gentleness to all people. I think sometimes we can allow the conversation and the tone of our culture to influence our conversation and our tone towards our culture. When Christ called us to be salt and light. <clears throat> Again, this isn't mere sentimentality. This isn't just being nice boys and girls. 
This is a, a conviction that we treat others as Christ treated us. As we're going to see, this type of good work towards all people can only be motivated by the gospel. Why would we not get even when people mistreat us, mischaracterize Christians? When, when people say things about Christians that you know aren't true uh, of, uh, of what Christians stand for. When, when you hear the, the slanders of others and you say, well, that's not the case. I'm going to get even. Why would we not do that? The gospel. Well, they didn't take time to understand my position before they responded. So why should I take time to understand their position before I respond? They weren't very, they weren't very understanding of me. Why should I seek to be understanding of them? The gospel. They're adversarial to me. Why would I not be adversarial to them? The gospel. Good works motivated by the gospel. So I just, I just have to ask you in the same way. What's your attitude and interaction like with those outside the church? Are you characterized in this way? Are you ready to do good for anyone? Even when you can't, are you burdened that you can't? Are you slow in, in how you speak of others and uh, eager to avoid quarreling but desiring to be humble and gentle, demonstrating meekness and understanding of others, a, a willingness to, to see their concerns? Do you reflect the heart of Jesus in your interactions with others? It's a searching question that I think all of us probably could say that <clears throat> at, least, at least in our heart at times, it's not reflected in this way. And then at times, maybe, maybe we don't act contrary to this, but by omission, we often don't act in, in intentional ways towards those outside of Christ seeking to do good works to all people, seeking to demonstrate gentleness to all people. Listen, this, as believers, this is our calling in the majority of your life. Like this is, this is think about this at work. Are you known as the, as the guy who's humble and, um, and courteous to all, gentle to all? In your interactions with others at school, do you just mimic the tone of those around you? In your, in your interaction with your neighbors, are you known as the person who seeks the concern, the concerns of others? Considering others more important than yourself. This is what Jesus is calling us to. And this is what we see Paul lay out here. This is our mission. It's a, the primary emphasis here. This isn't the totality uh, of, of what the mission of the church is. The primary emphasis that Paul is giving here is on the displaying of the character of God in the way that we live. And, and the reason this is so important is if we fail to display the character of God, the gospel, in the way that we live, when we get around to opening our mouths to declare it, who will believe us? Who will believe us if our life isn't marked by the very message that we proclaim? And sometimes it's because we know that we're not displaying it in our lives 
that were timid in declaring it. When in reality, we, we should be humble and recognize our shortcomings and our failings, applying the grace of God to the areas that we want to grow in, not allowing guilt and shame to keep us from doing the right next step. Maybe there's areas where you go, man, that's not me. I'm not that way at work. I'm not that way in my interaction with neighbors. Don't allow guilt and shame just to keep you from not doing it, but acknowledge it, bring it before God. His grace was sufficient to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It enables us uh, to say no to ungodly desires and yes to godly living. Like, let's get on with godly living, confessing our sin and getting on uh, with good works that he's called us to. And then not being ashamed to declare that gospel. So, uh, <clears throat> these good works are motivated by the gospel. And <clears throat> I want us to see this in, in greater detail in verses 3 through 7. You could say it this way. <clears throat> just like godliness isn't a, the call to godliness isn't a just pull yourself up by the bootstraps and try harder. The call to good works is, um, is the same. That seeking the good of our neighbors is grounded in the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior. Seeking the good of our neighbors must be grounded in the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior. And verses 3, really through uh, 5, give us a great way to understand the gospel. See, the gospel means good news. That's what the word literally means. And to understand the good news of what Jesus has done for us, we have to be honest about the bad news. And most people don't see the good news of the gospel because they either aren't willing or they don't yet understand the depth of the bad news. If somebody declared you cancer-free, but you didn't know that you had cancer, you would be excited, but maybe you wouldn't have a full appreciation of how good that good news was, right? Well, the, the good news of forgiveness of sins requires us to see our sins. So the bad news is that <clears throat> the gospel won't be good news to us unless we admit the bad news of our sin, and that's what Paul is pressing in here. He says, grounding our call to good works, where he says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our day in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. The point isn't to tell you about everybody else's sin. Uh, really what Paul is trying to do here is to remind believers of their sin. He says, remember your sin. Remember how bad uh, your sin was. Sin is the turning against God. It's the breaking of God's commands not living according uh, to his purpose and his design for our life. It's really foolishness, as it says in verse 3. Sin deceives us and leads us astray. It promises us life, but it leads to death. It promises us pleasure, but it enslaves us to our passions. It promises self-fulfillment and self-actualization, but instead we turn inward on ourselves, and then we're marked by envy and malice towards others. Our sin is an offense to God. Our sin is what put Jesus on the cross. Our sin not only separates us from God, but it separates us from others. Do you see there at the end of verse 3? See what sin does in our relationships with others? We pass our days being hated and hating others. Where does, where does that come from? It comes from sin. And unless God were to intervene, we would be condemned that's the good news. God intervenes. <clears throat> Verse 4 tells us, <clears throat> 
that it was the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior who intervened. The bad news of sin is laid out in all of its detail in verse 3, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. He saved us. He intervened in sending Jesus. Jesus is rightly called God our Savior. We saw last week he appeared his first time making salvation to all people, available to all people through his virgin birth, through his perfect life of obedience to God's commands, to his sacrificial death on the cross, to his victorious resurrection from the dead. And when he appeared, he put the goodness and loving kindness of God on display. This is why the Bible uses the word salvation. He saved us. He saved us from our sin, sin that separated us from God and sin that separated us from one another. And this salvation comes to us not because we were the kind of people that God was impressed with, but God's the kind of God who demonstrates mercy to sinners. And Paul specifically brings out the work of the Holy Spirit in our salvation as he talks about um, how uh, we've been saved not according to our works that were done by us, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. So when we come to faith in Christ, the Bible teaches us that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And what Paul's emphasizing here is two aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration, which is actually the language of new birth. If you read John 3, when it talks about being born again, um, that's the language that Jesus uses in John 3, that we uh, receive new life. And that new life comes to us through the working of the Holy Spirit, where we're made alive and, 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 and willing to respond to the invitation of the gospel, and that we're renewed. The work of regeneration happens once. The aspect of renewal is something that takes place continually in the life of the believer. So when we come to faith in Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's uh, work is de- described as, as making us new, making us to, to be born again, a spiritual birth, alive to God, and renewed in our spirit. He gives us life, new life, and renews us from within. So when you share the gospel, which is good news here, it's not up to you to be the most persuasive person in the world and to convince others to believe. It's the Holy Spirit who opens the eyes of people to believe. It's the Holy Spirit who causes new birth. God uses us as his mouthpiece to declare the message that he would use to open people's eyes. It's also the Holy Spirit who awakens within us new thoughts and desires for God, awakening us to to love God and, and to follow him. And the language of washing, as we saw a few weeks ago in Titus 2, is the language of the new covenant of what Jesus did in the New Covenant. We don't have time to read it today, but in Ezekiel 36, we see how uh, through the work of Christ, uh, the New Covenant has come where we have given, given a new heart and the Holy Spirit dwells within us, cleansed from our sin. That's the idea of washing. Um, <clears throat> and given the Holy Spirit that we might walk in obedience to God. Now, this very language is also what describes baptism. In baptism, you are proclaiming And professing publicly before others what God has worked in you through salvation. The work of the Holy Spirit internally, which is described as regeneration and renewal, we proclaim through baptism as an outward symbol of what God has done within us. 
baptized, if you've yet to be baptized as a believer professing your faith in Christ, really the New Testament doesn't, doesn't envision a Christian who wouldn't be baptized. It envisions that those who profess faith in Christ would publicly make that known through baptism. That's the practice that we see throughout the scriptures. So I would encourage you, if you're in that position and not yet uh, having pursued believer's baptism, to do so as a profession of what God has done in you. All of this comes through Jesus, who's richly, uh, the Holy Spirit's been richly provided to us, poured out to us through the work of Christ. As it says there in verse 6, God, Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs of eternal life. Justified by grace, made right with God, that's justification. Heirs of eternal life, new life in Christ. This is the the good news of the gospel. The good news of what God has done for us, how He saved us, not according to our works, but according to His mercy. And Paul says that this is what grounds our good works. So let me, let me step back from this and, uh, and, and flesh out maybe more specifically three ways in which the gospel motivates uh, us to be devoted to good works. There's three ways the gospel motivates us to good works. <clears throat> it's easy to say that, but what does that look like? How, how, how does the, the gospel move us towards these good works? Well, the first thing I want you to think about is gratitude. See, it's, it's in response to the gospel. We recognize how God's goodness and loving kindness has been showed to us. Who are we to withhold that from others? I think of, of Jesus as he teaches in the gospels that the one, who loves, the one who has been forgiven of little loves little. In the same way, the one who has been forgiven of much loves much. This is this idea that in response to what God has done for us in His grace, that we would, we would give ourselves to good works in the same measure. So gratitude is one way in which the gospel motivates us to be devoted to good works. I mentioned this earlier. The, the second is power. It's through the gospel that we actually have the power to sacrificially seek the good of others. It's the reason that we don't reply in kind. It's the reason that we are willing to lay down ourselves for others. It's through the gospel that we are being transformed and therefore have this new power to actually sacrificially love and serve others, seeking the good of others. And then humility. As Paul calls them to good works, in verse 3 he says, he, he ties it to the gospel as if to say, you're no better than anyone else. Remember your sin. Remember God's grace to you. There's no pretense in the Christian, no self-righteousness. As the Sri Lankan evangelist D.T. Nile said, Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. That's the kind of humility that marks the Christian. And when you recognize that that's who you are, you don't look on anyone else with pretense, no matter how difficult or dire their situation, or how unpleasant their sin. That's the kind of uh, grace, that's the, the good news of the gospel that motivates us to, to good works towards others because it marks us by humility. <clears throat> the gospel motivates us to be devoted to good works. That's Paul's closing message. But before he finishes it out, he has to address one other issue. 
And we won't press into this in great detail, but in short, in verses 9 through 11, we see that the church must guard against division. Paul's already addressed the, the false teachers and their false teaching in verses 10 through 16. He, he comes back to it as to emphasize the importance of addressing this issue in the churches in Titus. He's going to say two things. One, avoid foolish and speculative debates. And then two, take action, he's going to say, <clears throat> in verses 10 through 11 to protect the unity of the church. So he says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. It's kind of a, in a way, there's something very specific that's taking place in Crete that's unlike a lot of what we deal with. Um, I like how the, the New Living Translation actually captures this idea when it says, don't get involved in foolish discussions about spiritual pedigrees or quarrels and fights about obedience to Jewish laws. Don't get wrapped up in these things that are, um, are speculative and the finer points of the law. We, we saw that in verses uh, 10 through 16 in chapter 1 that there was a sense in which the, the circumcision party was adding to the gospel saying you needed to keep these laws, uh, these Jewish laws, in addition to your faith in Christ. Which Paul says <clears throat> uh, when you have a, a gospel plus, uh, Jesus plus, uh, kind of theology, you end up minus Jesus. You end up getting rid of the grace of Jesus and the emphasis is upon your works. And so he's digging into how they're going about teaching this. And uh, I like how one um, pastor put it. He said, questions about points where scripture is silent or upon mysteries which belong to God alone or prophecies of doubtful interpretation or mere modes of observing human ceremonies or all of these things are foolish, he says. And wise men and women avoid them. Our business is neither to ask nor answer foolish questions, but avoid them altogether. If we observe what the apostle says here, we're to be careful to maintain good works, and we'll find ourselves far from these unprofitable debates and speculation. This, the kind of things that the church should be concerned about aren't um, <clears throat> uh, straining gnats and dissecting small debatable points, but to be devoted to the clear teaching of God's word. So don't get caught up in these things. Instead, give yourself to thinking um, about, do I know the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I renewed by the spirit uh, of my mind? Am I walking not after the flesh, but after the spirit? Am I growing in grace? Do my conversations adorn the doctrine of God my Savior? Am I looking to the coming of the Lord, watching as a servant waits for its master? Am I uh, doing all that I can for Jesus? These are the questions that could concern us. Not these finer points that ultimately, when we elevate to such a degree that they cause division, when that happens, Paul says the action has to be taken, that we're to protect the unity of the church. And so just as he did in chapter 1, where they're to be silenced and to be rebuked, he says when it comes to a divisive person, warn them once and then twice, and then have nothing more to do with them. Sounds kind of harsh, but it's kind of following the pattern in Matthew uh, chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, which instructs us in church discipline, which is uh, to <clears throat> ultimately, uh, we'll, we'll see that uh, there's three steps that he says. We can't get into those, but go to them individually, addressing the issue. To, if they don't receive it and repent, take one or two more with you and address it with them, and then ultimately take it to the church. I don't think Titus 3 is specifically giving us a, an example of church discipline per se because it's Titus who's handling it. Uh, but I think it's in line uh, with, with what we see in Matthew 18. Uh, and, and the church is to, is to prioritize church discipline in two, sense, two senses. And 
Um, <clears throat> I skipped over these a minute ago, but there's formative discipline, which is really the culture of discipleship, where the regular rhythms of discipleship in the local church, where we uh, pursue godliness together, where we confess sins and, uh, and grow in grace and uh, help one another remember the gospel. This is, this is what the church does all the time, formative dis- discipline, which is really discipleship. But the aspect that Paul's talking about here is corrective discipline, where a specific action has to be taken in correction toward the sin of some within the church. And that's in those cases where uh, these steps must be followed. And, and I've, I've wrestled with this passage because I don't want us to think that we should, anybody who says things that we don't like to hear or anybody who talks about things in a way that we wouldn't talk about, that all of a sudden that uh, we, we, we see that as a, a person who's being divisive. I don't think that uh, what Paul is emphasizing here is to say that we shouldn't have uh, hard conversations or we shouldn't talk about debatable things. There's a difference between um, needing to divide and loving to divide. The person who's divisive and demanding of their points, even when they're debatable points. That's what he's addressing here. These false teachers who have been unwilling to hear uh, Titus and Paul's rebuke unwilling to listen and turn from their teaching. They're to be addressed. And, and what, what's amazing about the Bible's teaching about church discipline is one that it tells us that we should prize the reputation of Christ and we should prize the unity of the church. But the way that, the way that Paul addresses it here, even, even though it, it gets to the point of not having anything to do with him, it's not, it's not the first time. It's not after the first time that you take that action. It's not after the second time that you take that action. It's at the third point that you take that action. That 99.9% of the sin in the church is dealt with in formative discipline, in the everyday rhythm of the church, in the discipleship of the church. But when there's sin that's serious, when there's sin that's public, when there's sin that's unrepentant, after intentionally pursuing that person, that person, a person caught in unrepentant sin, calling them to repentance, calling them to return to godliness. When that response, when that pursuit isn't received, then action must be taken to prize the reputation of Christ and the unity of the church. So as we think about Paul's words here, as he seemed necessary, he deemed it necessary to address this issue, here's my admonition for us. Let's love the reputation of Christ and the unity of the church, not at the expense of truth, but at great cost of personally bearing with one another as we seek to walk in the truth of God's word and the grace of the gospel. Let's love the the reputation of Christ and the unity of the church, Not, not that we would... Uh, excuse uh, or at the expense of the truth, but so much so that we would pursue one another at great cost, seeking to help us grow in godliness, bearing with one another in love, pushing one another towards godliness, not dismissing one another out of hand, not being willing to pursue one another when sin's grip has its sway on us. That's what Christ is calling us to. That's ultimately the call of church discipline. <clears throat> and then he ends with a final word. 
He gives some instructions about Artemis and Tychicus who are coming uh, to replace Titus, and Titus is to go to Nicopolis, and uh, he's to send on Zenos and Apollos on their way, providing for them. The mission is ongoing, and he, he ends with his final admonition. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Grace, or greet those who love us in the faith, and grace be with you all. In a way, it's a fitting conclusion. He ends with the, the point of chapter 3. Good works grounded in grace. Devote yourself to good works. Grace be with you all. We're going to enter now a time uh, of taking the Lord's Supper. Um, but I, I want us, as we reflect on God's grace, uh, as our band comes up, um, to think about this call to good works that God's putting before us. <clears throat> as we enter Easter, I just want to, I want to challenge us to consider how we're devoting ourselves to good works. And uh, One of the specific ways that I want to do that is uh, this year at Easter, rather than doing a large event, we want to mobilize our church family uh, to do small acts of seeking the good of your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers. So we're, we're going to do uh, some, what we are calling Easter grants, where we'll make up to $100 available to anyone who has a plan to serve their neighbors, friends, coworkers, uh, leading up to Easter. We want to do this in light of Easter and see this as an opportunity perhaps to invite some of those that you serve, to invite them to join us to be a part of Easter. And, and I know as you think about this, you're like, well, what, what can I do? Um, I don't know exactly what God would lead you to do, but I just want to encourage you to think about some of these things. Maybe you could host an Easter egg hunt outside for some kids in your neighborhood. Maybe you could have a brunch with a small number of friends. Maybe you could uh, plan a night to gather some friends or neighbors together uh, to, to spend time together. Make goodie bags uh, of some sort for neighbors and coworkers. Maybe even just meet a pressing need of one person that you know in your life. We, we are going to make these uh, sign-up available for you to, to just say, hey, here's, here's what I'd like to do, and we'll make that money available to you so we can tangibly seek the good of others uh, as we approach this Easter as an opportunity uh, for us to display the love of Christ, uh, to tangibly even share the love of Christ. Maybe it's the one person that you've been praying for. Maybe it's a neighbor you've been meeting to get. Uh, to know better. Maybe you just want to prepare a meal and take it to a neighbor. There's literally no um, set thing that you have to do as much as it is a call to think about how you could do good to others motivated by the gospel. As we continue to navigate this pandemic and think through what it all looks like, uh, I think as the, as the church, we have an opportunity to be the first movers who are willing uh, to, to move towards others and seek their good in responsible, respectful ways uh, but intentionally motivated by the gospel, seek the good of others as a tangible outworking of what God has called us to do. And we don't just do it in light of Easter. We do it in light of the gospel. And so it's the, the characteristic of our life to be a people devoted to good works. <clears throat> Let's pray.